I was listening to Terry's sermonette today. <laughs> I think it'll fit real well. Only one announcement that we have, there's uh, Sunday evening is a New Moon Bible study, which makes Monday the first day of the, of the month, the first of, of the year. So, this note here from Barbara, she says, Happy New Year. <laughs> but, it's a beautiful day, it's been a very beautiful day time outside. I, I enjoy the warm weather. I've been able to uh, actually work with, out having all my long handles and extra shirts and stuff on and be able to go outside and enjoy <laughs> the warm, beautiful weather. Uh, I've been reading Romans a lot. In fact, I've given sermons on Romans and today I'm going to go to Romans 12. It starts in verse 1, Romans 12, 1, which says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or your main purpose, really. And so if you want a title, it's going to be, what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? We know what a sacrifice is, or a dead sacrifice. You go out there and kill something. But we're to be, by Paul's definition, in God's definition, to be living sacrifices. God wants us alive. He wants us to make some changes. So, first of all, what is a sacrifice? And I'm going to read this from the Eaton Bible Dictionary. It says, a sacrifice... The offering up of a sacrifice is to be regarded as the divine institution. It did not originate with men. God himself appointed it as a mode in which acceptable worship was to be offered to him by guilty people. So it's just saying that when you sin, God expects something back from it. And because Adam and Eve did not obey God He instituted sacrifices to make them realize that, hey, I made a mistake. More than a mistake, I went contrary to God. It goes on, sacrifices were of two kinds. Unbloody, such as first fruits and tithes, meat and drink offerings, and incense offerings. Those were the one type of sacrifices the other is a bloody sacrifice, which is a burnt offering, peace offerings, and sin and trespass offerings. Those required a death. In the Nelson in, uh, Bible Dictionary, it says, The general word for sacrifice in the Mosaic Law was gorbon, literally that which is brought near. That's what it meant, something that was brought near to God, and the fuller uh, distinction of this sacrifice was a gift of holiness, and that was, if we can turn to Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 20 and verse 40, Ezekiel 20, verse 40, for in my holy mountain, in the mountain of, of the heights of Israel, such says the Lord God, 
There shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me. There will I accept them, and there will I require your offerings and your first fruits of your oblations with all your holy things. So God says there's a time coming that everybody is going to come in front of him, and everyone is going to present an offering. And so we read that in, uh, that in the millennium there will be sacrifices. Oh, today we don't have them, but there will be instituted again. In verse 41, I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein you have been scattered, and I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. And, you know, if we look at that to us today, God bringing us out from the people. He brought us out from this world, and he is going to be sanctified by us if we're willing to obey him and do things his way. So the word Gorbin was used of anything given in, given or devoted to God. Anything and everything that's given to God is as devoted to him. I ask you, are you devoted to him? Well, if you were baptized... You've accepted Christ, and you said, I'll go his way. So that makes us devoted to God. So then, what does God want from us? You know, if, if it's something that is devoted to God, and we've been devoted to God through baptism, what does God want from you? What is he looking for in your life? Well, there in Romans, it says he's looking for a living sacrifice. He's looking for something from each one of us. And whether we're here in this land or somewhere out in the telephone or wherever you are, God's looking for something from you. Hosea 6 is a clue, I might say. He says in Hosea 6, verse 6, For I desire mercy. So God's looking for us to have to be like him. Sometimes it's difficult, isn't it, to really have mercy towards somebody else? Sometimes we might say something or we might act one way and we just get bent out of shape. But God says that he, he would expect from us to be like him, to be merciful We don't see that much in this country, do we? But that's what God requires. That's one of the things he's asking for us. And not sacrifice, not a killing of an animal, because we can go to Hebrews and see where God says all all the animals, all the bulls and the goats that you kill will never take care of your sins. They don't cover it up. So he doesn't want sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So he wants us to be merciful and to learn about him. Often I get calls from people that say, well, this person says they're the only church of God. And they say do this and this. And this person over here, no, he says he's the only person of God. But that's not what God wants. He wants us to know Him. So we're told in the Scriptures 
to study and prove his word. Prove what he has to say. So the knowledge of God is more important by far than what we might think ourselves. I remember Mr. Armstrong, when I first started listening, saying, don't believe me, believe the Bible. So God wants us to believe him by getting his word. Back in Romans, it says we're to become a living sacrifice. So turn to 2 Corinthians then, chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. For this cause, and this is what God is wanting from us, for this cause we faint not. He doesn't want us to become weary of well-doing. He doesn't want us to get weary of Bible study. He doesn't want us to say, it's just too much, and walk away. It's, it's easy to do that. Most of us that are older here have eyewitnessed many people become weary and walk away. But he says, don't faint. But through our outward, or though our outward man perish. So we have to give up stuff, don't we? We might have to give up the things that we had before. So he said the outward the desires for this world, the desires for having money or a car or a house or a job or a family or whatever, he says, though that outward person, that physical desires perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. How do we do that? Prayer, Bible study, fasting, meditating. I can go outside at night in my back. In my backyard, because there's no lights back there, I can look at the stars and look up there and wonder how magnificent our God is, who created all that I can see up there. And it's interesting that I can look up there and find the Big Dipper. I can't find the North Star, maybe because I don't know where it is. But I know when I see the Big Dipper where it is. And God put it there. It's been there for thousands of years. And it's still there, and it's still pointing north. And it tells me if I keep my eye focused on God, then I'm going in the right direction. And so I have to renew my life daily because there are trials and tribulations that affect us. Verse 17, for our light affliction. So he said, we go through trials here. We go through trials wherever we are. Basically, they're light afflictions. So light afflictions, which is but for a moment. Of course, our life is just a moment in time with God. And when you get, when you're, say, 15, 16, 20, 25, you think your life long time in front of you. But when you pass 60, and 70, and 80, you look back and say, where did it go? Time really flies. You ask any of the people that are over 60, how fast their life has gone past them. And your afflictions, the light afflictions that we have, are just for a moment. Because tomorrow is another day. And it's already come and gone. Work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So, 
if our light afflictions are only for the purpose of God's way of life, we have to focus on that. If we lose that focus, then we're going to walk away. Like the sermonette pointed out, we, we can lose those things, but we're not to do that. We're supposed to hang in there and strive for it because what is offered to you is so much more than what you see going on in your life today. And while we look not at the things which are seen, so we're not to look primarily at the surroundings around us, whether it be our homes or our jobs, or we want more and more, because that's the general American society is, I have to have more. I've got to have more. You've got to give me more. And the more we give, the less people want to do. But God wants you to look forward to what he has to offer in the future. Like Abraham said, look for a city, a government, a way of life that God created. Not this way. Those things are just temporal. So we look for things that are not seen, but at the things which... uh, We look for not the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. This is just a temporary life. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And so we get trials. And I know many of the people listening on the line away from Anatoth think that it's really tough out there. And right, and rightly so they are. But I was talking to Bill this past week, and he pointed out something I hadn't thought about. You know, we think we're in trials out in the world. So people on the telephone line, you think you got a bad trial? Bill pointed out, when you come through those gates over there and move out here on Anatoth, it's just beginning. (laughs) It's just starting. Because God's going to find out. He wants to know, who are you? He wants to know, what are you? And why are you here? And the only way to find that out is, he's going to make it tough. He doesn't want quitters. He doesn't want somebody to say, this is too much for me to handle. He wants you to look for a city, a government, so spectacular. And that's why you renew your life day by day. If you don't pray, if you get laxed, and that's, that's a Laodicean attitude. That happened to the church. Look at what happened to Worldwide. We didn't renew ourselves day by day. Oh, we might have for a while. And I've heard ministers say this. Well, I, I try to pray at least three times a week. And then you hear, I try to pray one time a week. And sometimes I might make it ever twice a week. Or, or sometimes maybe once a month. That's not remove, renewing your mind daily. You have to have your nose in this book. Not what somebody else says, what's here. So people question what we've produced. God inspired Daryl to speak about Passover. I read those scriptures. You read those scriptures. I talked to people that have read them in times past. 
Didn't understand it. But it wasn't time to understand it, was it? God told Daniel, shut up the book. It's not for you to know. God told Mr. Armstrong, you don't need to know that. And we didn't know that. So if we're renewing our mind, we're getting into this book and starting to read and say, hey, that's right. Why didn't I see that before? Because it wasn't time. So God brought you here. If you're not here, if you're out there on a telephone line someplace, maybe you need to be here. Because God wants to know who you are. How much will it take to get you to walk and follow me? He wants a living sacrifice. I'll tell you, you come out here and live, and I think I can ask anyone out here, you are learning to become a live sacrifice because you're having to give up things that you might think is the most important thing in my life. My job, my house, my car, my family, uh, who I am. Well, God says, who are you? So you come out here and you're learning how to readjust your thinking to go God's way. Ephesians 4.23 tells us, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So here's a factor to be a living sacrifice. You've got to renew that spirit. Some of us had a first love. When I first was called into the church, I couldn't get enough. Somewhere down the line, it became old hat. Must have, because I didn't. And wasn't as fired up as I was in the beginning. So here in Ephesians, Paul understood that back when he was alive. And said to renew that spirit of your mind. How do you do that? Again, what does God say? Christ in his last prayer said, what is truth? God's word is truth. He said, your word, Father, is truth. That's where the truth is. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they that wait upon the eternal shall renew their strength. We don't want to hurry God up. He's got a purpose for making things go the time that He set. I have seen in my 40-some years in the church us try to hurry God up. Back in the 60s, 72 was God's going to come, and boy, we really pushed on that. And God said it wasn't time. So, okay, maybe it's 75 or 82 or 90. Are we still trying to push God into His way? He's still wanting to know who you are. Maybe as an individual, I hold it up. Maybe you as an individual hold it up. God wants to know, are you ready? You know, I've thought many times about counseling. You know, a good counselor is one who does a lot of listening. It's basically you don't know somebody until you let them tell you who they are. And I've learned that this past couple months of some people here. I was able to find out more about who they are because I was able to keep my mouth shut and let them talk. But God wants to know who you are, so do you talk to Him and on a 
not a religious type thing where you, you do vows and this, but you talk to God like you would talk to your friend. Tell him what bothers you. Tell him where you're coming from, what you need, what you want, and ask him to show you and lead you in the right direction. So if we wait upon the eternal here in Isaiah 40, verse 31, we'll renew that strength. And they shall mount up with the wings of eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. We look forward to that time. I look forward to the time my wife can get up and run. That she and won't be weary. I look forward to the time I can look at a lot of you here and know that you have difficulties and know that you're going to run and you're mount up like the wings of eagles and you're going to get around a whole lot better. God promises that. But we have to wait on Him. And sometimes that's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to put up with a trial of maybe living in the desert, the wasteland. So if you look at this as the wasteland, you look at the downside of it, yeah, it becomes tough. But on the other hand, if you look at this, it's a beautiful place to be. We have beautiful mountains. We have wonderful people that we can get along with. We live in a community where we're in a fishbowl. You see what your neighbor does. But your neighbor sees what you do too. But you have friends that you can talk to. You have people that that love you and want to support you and help you. And that's what's fantastic. So if you look at the positive aspect, God brought you out here to put you in charge of a in the world tomorrow of teaching somebody else what's most important in life. Not riches of gold and silver, houses and cars, jobs that might last a day or two, of people that find fault with you because you want to serve God. No, that's not where we put our focus. Our focus should be doing what God wants us to do. This is not a game that God called you to do. Sometimes, you know, we see kids, they get on the computers and they play these games and they're war games and they're all these different kind of games and we get... Pleasure. We want the pleasure. We want the good things and don't have to put up with bad things. But this is not a game that we're playing. This is a life and death situation. If you fail, and God doesn't want you to fail, so if you become laxed in Laodicean, you might find yourself out here when the trials really start, when they really come down on you, and then you'll know what a trial really is. Oh, our trials are light and easy right now, but in that three and a half year period where those that love God, those that are seeking that city that God's building, are in a place protected with a culvert over them and a fire around them, and you're not there, then you're going to know what trials really are. You're going to know what 
Isaiah went through when he was cut in half. What Stephen went through and how many others down the line went through. Romans 12, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world. So here Paul understood these things. He understood the problem in mankind when he said, God wants a living sacrifice. And he says, how do you do that? By not being conformed to the world. Not looking like the world. If you talk like the world, if you dress like the world, if you play like the world, you must be of the world. But on the other hand, if you follow God's directions and you live like God wants, you act like He wants, you study like He wants, you must be like God. You know, that whole series on in the image of God, that's what He's looking for. He wants you to be in His image. He wants you to look like Him. Maybe not your physical form look like Him, but He gives us in Galatians 5, He says, this is the way you should look. He gives you two status, two things. Like the world and like God. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. If you have those qualities, you look like God. If you're merciful, you look like God. If you're harsh, if you can't forgive, if you find fault, if you look down on other people, if you think you're better than somebody else, you must be like the world. So you have a choice to make if you're going to be a living sacrifice. So don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So again, Paul's pointing out, renew your mind. Look into the mirror and see what you look like. The Bible is the mirror. Do I look like God? Or do I look like the world? If I look somewhat like the world, if I look a little bit like the world, Paul says, renew that mind. Renew it. Change it. Transform it. That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So you do that to prove what God wants. You prove what God expects you from, from you. I know we hear sermons and sometimes they're pretty tough, aren't they? They come down on us. I know I sit out there too and I hear God speaking through Daryl and sometimes it's pretty hard. And I think, when did he see that? About me. But I know it's not just about me. I know it's God speaking to all of us to make changes in our life. And sometimes they're tough. But do we regard those things? We take it and sit down and say, that is something I need to work on. That's something I need to change. How many times has Daryl brought out 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5? You know what that one is? We might ought to memorize that. It says, bring every into captivity, every thought to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. I hear that from the sermon just like you do. And I'm sitting back there and saying, well, maybe I'll 
got to work on this or, or that. Or how does God know that I was thinking the wrong thoughts today or this week? And yet it comes out. How many times have we heard that in the last month in a sermon? Maybe just as a passing thought. But God wants our attention. He wants a living sacrifice. If He wanted a dead sacrifice of you, He'd just put you to sleep. But He doesn't need sacrifices. He needs you to obey Him. He needs each and every one of us to follow Him. And capturing every thought is really tough. It's really tough. At least for me. Maybe it's easy on most of you, but for me it's tough to see things happen. So do we. Are we? Am I? You have to ask yourself. Put your name there. Am I a living sacrifice? John 15, verse 19. We'll read this over Passover services. Christ's instruction to His disciples. If you were of the world, the world would love His own. If you really are loved by this world, because you get along with the world, you know, you do the things that are the world, you look like the world, so they love you. If you uh, were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but you have chosen, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you. And maybe not the world, like Christ told Samuel. Samuel, they don't hate you, they hate me. So the world is basically ruled by Satan. It is Satan that hates Christ and anything and anyone who is trying to look like Christ. So, if you look like Christ, guaranteed, you're going to have problems. (laughs) There's going to be people that will look down on you, people that will give you a hard time, people that will accuse you of things. You're not of the world. You're of Christ. So, how does the world treat you? Are you a living sacrifice? If you're a living sacrifice, then you'll know because people can see you're different. You're willing to give up a lot. You're willing to help out a lot. In John 14, or 17 rather, John 17, verse 14, Christ speaking in His last prayer, said, I have given them your word, Christ speaking to the Father, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So does the world hate you? Well, they hated Christ. You can be sure of one factor. If you love Christ, you walk Christ's way of life, if you are becoming a living sacrifice, which means you're putting away this world. Revelation 18.4, come out of this world, come out of her, my people, out of this world, out of Babylon. We know that this nation is Babylon. It says, come out of her, my people, and be separate. So, if you're coming out of the world putting the worldly things behind you, putting on Christ, you're hated. And you will be hated. And they'll find fault with you. 
Second Peter 20, or 2 verse 20. Second Peter 2 verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the eternal and the Savior, Emmanuel Christ, they again entangle themselves. Give that a lot of thought. You've escaped the world because God opened your understanding. He's selected. He called you and selected you and put you in a place where you can learn His way of life. If, after getting away from the worldly attitudes and the worldly way of life, escaping the pollution of this world through the knowledge of our Savior, Emmanuel of Christ, they again entangle themselves. Do you want to give up? Do you want to go back into this world and to gain worldly things which are only temporary? God gave us 70 years, 60, 70 years, some more, some less. What are you doing with it? It's a short period of time as opposed to ever and ever and ever into a way of life that is so spectacular, so phenomenal, it's hard to grasp. Even Abraham said he looked for that because he wasn't satisfied with what he had. So if you get entangled again in this world and overcome, he says the latter end is worse than the beginning. So if you began in the world and you came out, but you, you lost hope, you lost integrity, you lost the strength to keep going in a forward direction, it's worse. It's a whole lot worse what's going to happen. Back to Romans 12, verse 3. Romans 12, verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Spend your time thinking of what God wants from you. Think soberly. Don't think yourself to be something great because you're only great in Christ. You're only great when God puts you in the position and called you to do what you have to do. Luke chapter 10, verse 40. Luke 10:40. Here's a case where Martha thought she was just being overpowered and done... A whole lot more. Verse 38 starts, Now it came to pass as they went that they entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received them into her house. And she had a sister called Martha, uh, Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. And Martha was cumbered about much serving. Do we get ourselves so bogged down in, in physical things that we do that we don't take the time to sit at Christ's feet? 
It's easy to do that. It's easy to let the cares of this world overpower the important things of life, and that's being with Christ. Sitting at His feet, letting Him teach you. So she was encumbered by serving and came to Christ and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, to come. So she helped me. She was so bogged down in being something important, being the one there serving and doing all the service work, that she couldn't see that sitting and letting Christ teach her was more important. Martha felt she was a sacrifice by serving and giving the time and everything and not realizing the most important thing of her life was being with Christ. How many times we found that, that we found something more important in our life that we will give up eternal life. Whether it be a job or a family or gold or silver. Something. You know, there's many, many, many idols out there that we can put up in front of Christ. And too often, we're like Martha. We get so bogged down in being number one, maybe, or being the person that stands out in front of everybody and doing all the work and look at me. No. That's not important. Because we know that there are those people who serve, that help, that give, that spend their time learning about Christ more than they do serving. So, we have to ask, am I a Martha? Or am I a Mary? Good examples for us to look into. Emmanuel said unto Martha, 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 you are careful and troubled about many things. If we get ourselves bogged down thinking about so many other things and get so bogged down in this life, troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. The important thing, the important thing in our life is to look like our Savior. To be schooled and educated and live a type of life that He lived. That's what's important. But we're not always that way. I'll give a couple examples of people who we might think of as, besides Mary and Martha, who set us as examples of being a living sacrifice. Remember Israel came out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, they wandered in the desert for 40 years, and finally, because they disobeyed, because they didn't trust God, those that were of the the age, a certain age, all died in the desert. And so they finally came up to the Jordan. They're going to cross the Jordan and go into the land, the promised land that God promised to give to them, the land of Canaan. He's going to give that to them. 
And we see that there in Joe, uh, Joshua chapter 2, Joshua chapter 2, we see it here where Joshua sent two spies into Jericho. Sent them into the land to see what the land was like. Well, any good army will at least have some idea what is happening in the land that they're going to try to take over. I want to know what the people look like, how they're fortified, their, their cities are fortified, what their armies are like, what the people are like, what, what we're going to deal with. They, they, where do you want to know? A good general will do that. So here we see Joshua sent in two spies. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, verse 2, they went, he went into the, or verse 1, they went into the town of Jericho and they came to the, into a, a harlot's house. And that word harlot could also mean a person who um, deals with people, deals with men. Now, whether it was uh, her home, her home, own home, but most likely it would either was an inn or maybe a brothel. You know, it could have been either one. But nevertheless, this woman, Rahab, knew about this group of people that were wandering for 40 years out here. She knew who they were. I think, let me find that here. I think it's down in verse 9, where she said unto them, I know that the Eternal has given you this, uh, the land, and that your terror has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. How did she know that? Just because she had lived in her own house? She'd entertained people for quite a long time. It was already well known. And so she invited these men into her house. Verse 2, And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. How did the king know to go to her? Primarily because either she had the inn or she had a brothel, and she entertained a lot of people. And they were watching her house. Exactly what they would do today, wouldn't they? The police would look if the governor or the mayor or the president knew that there were spies coming into the country and they knew that you entertained a lot of people. Do you think that they wouldn't put your house under surveillance? Sure they would. That's what's happening here. The king, the ruler of Jericho, knew this. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab and saying, Bring forth these men that they come to you, which are entered into your house, for they are come to search out the country. Somebody had to tell him. Somebody said, Hey, they're in that house. They're in that establishment. So he said, Bring them out. I want to see them. She didn't do that, though. We know that. 
she was able to allow them to get away. And in verse 11, the last part of verse 11 states an interesting fact. She says, therefore, the eternal, your God, he is God of heaven above and in the earth beneath. She understood that God was God. And because of her willingness to protect God's people, she became a living sacrifice. And in the process, she said in verse 12, Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the eternal, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my Father's house. She not only wanted her own personal safety, but notice she said, My father's house, and give me a token that, and that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brethren, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. She put her life on the line for God. And what's nice and interesting about that, you know that Rahab, considered a harlot, considered a low-life person, is in the genealogy of Christ. And the genealogy of David. You can read that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 through 6. It says... Salmon begot Boaz of Rahab. Boaz, we know, married Ruth. And Boaz begot Obed, Ruth's son. And Obed begot Jesse, David's father. So here was a Canaanite woman a Gentile by our standards of Israel's standards, who is in the line of Christ. So she became one of the living sacrifices. Another case is Ruth. We know Ruth married Naomi's son. Ruth's husband died. Naomi's husband died. Naomi's other son died. And Naomi said, I'm going home. And Ruth said, I'm going with you. Well, we know Ortha left, but Ruth didn't. In verse 16 of Ruth chapter 1, says, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, or to return from following after you. For whether you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God my God. And where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord so do to me, and more also, if aught be death part from me. Ruth gave up everything. 
Everything that was seemingly important to her in her life to follow God. Sometimes hard, we think. Uh, this trial has hard me. I don't know whether I can make it. I don't know whether I can endure this trial. It just seems that God's putting too much on me. Ruth gave it up, didn't she? She gave up her family. She gave up everything she had. Ruth also is in the line of Christ. Ruth also was a Moabite. She was a, quote, Gentile. But God shows, like through Paul, he said that he branched out, not only to Israel, but he gave the opportunity to others. Ruth and Rahab. Let's look at another example of a living sacrifice. King of Israel, David. Sometimes we think, because we get this stigma that David was a kid. I think of my grandson, like Tyler. We talk about being young and stuff. But when I look at it real strongly, I see maybe Andrew or Derek or Scotty, uh, young men, not knowing all the ins and outs of fighting, not warriors, but young men who love God, who serve God. And that's what David did. He was a young man, maybe 20. He wasn't a kid that couldn't fight, because we know he fought a bear. And he fought a lion. Did you ever try to take on a, a lion? 300, 400 pound cat? You're no match for that. A bear, let me tell you, you're no match for a bear. If you think you are, talk to Daryl. He'll give you some good stories about bears that'll turn you around. Or watch some of the uh, National Geographics about bears. They're ferocious, they're strong, more powerful. Here's a young man who killed a lion and then killed a bear and delivered a sheep, a lamb that was in his charge away from that animal and killed it. So we find in this case where David, as a young man who already played an instrument to soothe Paul, I mean to soothe uh, Saul King, who also was Saul's armor bearer, he'd been there, who came one day, they're battling with the Philistines, and here's this monstrous man, maybe ten foot tall. So if David was my size, maybe 5'10 or 5'11, somewhere in there, But he was strong. He wasn't a weak little kid. He was a young man that was strong, who feared God. And this giant comes out and curses God, curses God's army. And David wonders, what in the world are these people doing? You can see a young man would ask that. He would say, 
What's the matter with you people? He went to Saul. So we get the idea that he was small because we think that he put Saul's armor on it was just too big. No, David put it on himself. His comment was, I've never tried it. In other words, I have never been out here fighting with all this armament that you have, a big heavy helmet and a you know, a breastplate to keep the arrows from coming in and stuff to protect your legs, you know. No, David already had his armament. You know that? He had his armament without Saul's. Ephesians 6.13 tells you that. It says, put on the armor of God. That's the armor that David had. And when he went out there to battle, it was kind of hilarious, I think, because David was a young man, but he was well equipped because he loved God. David is a good example of a living sacrifice. Verse 44 of First Samuel 17, verse 44. And the Philistines said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the fowls of the air. Well, I wanted to go a little bit before that. Verse 43, or 42, verse 42. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. He said, I'm a warrior. What is this? What are you doing to me? He disdained him. And um, I lost my place. And Philistine looked about and he disdained him. And he, uh, for he was about a youth, a, a youth ruddy and a fair countenance. David was a very handsome young man, and he was probably a redhead, and he was good looking. And the Philistine said to David. Am I a dog? Look at me. I'm a warrior. Mighty powerful man. Am I a dog that you come to me with a stave? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David then said David to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a shield. This guy was well armed. He was well protected. Was a stick going to take and affect him any? No. He, could, he looked out there. He, you know, it was, you're putting me down. You're making me look like I'm nothing. But David said, but I come to you in the name of the eternal, the Lord of hosts, the, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defiled. David already had his armament on, didn't he? His armament was God. This day will the Eternal deliver you into my hand. He didn't take credit. He went out there as a warrior for Christ. He was willing to live Christ's way of life. And we know the end of the story. David won. God won. It's not about David. 
It's not about Ruth or Rahab, Esther, and how many others? It's all about God. It's all about what the Father wants. What Christ wants when he asks us to be a living sacrifice. Another example is Daniel. Daniel, taken with, I think it was 20,000 people carried into captivity. Of that group of people, only four men, young men, would stand up and walk the walk that was given to them. They would, only four of them stood up to be living sacrifices. They said, we trust God. We're not going to eat that food. They were different, weren't they? They didn't want to follow the world. We see that Nebuchadnezzar built a mammoth statue. Sort of like uh, the not the Lincoln, the uh, Washington Monument. Big, tall statue. Told everybody to bow down to it. What do these three men do? Do they bow down? Do they give up? Do they change their status? Do they turn and become part of the world? No, they didn't, did they? They told the king... Let me go there. Let's go over to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they were brought, these men, before the king. And the king told him to bow down. (laughs) Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom you, whom we serve, uh, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your uh, your hands, O king, but if not, be it known unto you, O king, that we will not serve your God nor worship the golden image which you have set up. How about that? God doesn't want us to worship the world or anything in it. He says he wants us to be a living sacrifice, holy, compatible to him. And transformed from the world. And so, when we come through that gate, we're tried, aren't we? God says, I want to know who you are. I want to know what you do. I want to know how you will respond. No, we haven't been thrown in a fiery furnace, have we? Or even threatened to be thrown in a furnace. Maybe we've been threatened to be kicked off the land because we don't comply with the standards that some people set. But are we hanging tight? Or are we going to turn tail and run? Are we going to sit there and say, 
our God is able to deliver us no matter what the trial is, what the trouble is. Are we sick? Are we hurt? Are we out of money? Or think we're out of money? Or we know God is our provider? Or maybe we forgot that. God is our protector? Maybe we forgot that. God is our shield in flight. David used God as a shield, didn't he? Walked up there, took that sling, slung it, and that stone was pretty accurate. Hit that giant in the, right in the forehead, knocked him cold to the ground dead. Then he got on top of him. We shows again a status that David was not a weakling. He pulled that sword off of Goliath's sheath and cut the guy's head off. He wasn't a weakling. Are we weaklings? Do we have that faith? We can go on to Hebrews 11. Read about Noah. Read about Abraham and Sarah. We can read about Jacob and Esau. Read about Moses. In verse 23 of Hebrews 11, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king. His parents are examples of living sacrifices. They could have been killed instantly, but... God had a purpose, gave them a challenge, and they walked the walk that was given to them. Each one of us are given challenges from time to time. There's so many examples of living sacrifices in the Scriptures if we just go and read about them. We can read about ourselves, I think. I haven't got the time to do that, but go back and read... Revelation 2 and 3. Put it in the light that God wants for you to be a living sacrifice. Okay? He says to the first church, you left your first love. You had a love. You were willing to go this way. I called you. I opened your understanding. But you became lukewarm. You left that first desire I don't know how many of you had the opportunity to talk to somebody who's just now starting to hear some of the things that we've heard for ten years. And they're just beginning to get it. And they're so excited. They just can't get enough of it. But it's so much there that they just, they're just overwhelmed with it because they want to gain as much knowledge as we've been given. And sometimes we just take it, oh, hum, I guess... It's easy to fall into that trap. Each one of the churches were told the same thing. Repent and turn back around. Recapture that first love. Renew your mind, the spirit that's in you. God's spirit, renew that. Strengthen it. Get out there and go for it. It's too easy 
to slip back into the world. The end result of going backward is not what you want. It's just not what you want. This life is short. If you get to your 70s and think, maybe I'm on borrowed time now. What am I doing with my borrowed time? Am I doing anything with my borrowed time? No. Maybe I'm just sitting there letting it go by the wayside. Romans 1.17 tells us that the just shall live by faith. Do we trust God all that way? We need to stand tall for Christ. A living sacrifice doesn't back down. And whether it's a fiery furnace or a lion's den, whether it's a tiger or a bear or a king, whether it's riches or whatever we put as a god, an idol in front of us, because that's what it comes to. God expects you to be a living sacrifice. It's why he inspired that. He wants to know, who are you? So he gives you a trial. Are you going to let that trial be that part of your life that will pull you down? Or will you use that as a stepping tool for the next one? So he wants to know, who are you? What is your makeup? Why are you here? What is your integrity? Are you striving, as Romans 12, verse 1 says, to become a living sacrifice?